Hi, I'm Beck Rayner, and this is the Military Wife Life Podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports, and embraces the spouses behind the military members by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. Want to join a bank that just gets Defence Life? Defence Bank is one of Australia's largest customer-owned banks. They have 33 on-base branches across Australia, an award-winning banking app that allows you to do all your banking wherever, whenever, and Defence Bank offers competitive products and services tailored for ADF members and defence spouses. Visit defencebank.com.au today and see how easy your banking can be. This week on the podcast, I speak with someone who finds it hard to say no to a jam session at his local on a Friday night. Someone who lives in country New South Wales and hundreds of k's from the beach, but nonetheless is a keen surfer. Someone who can't pass up a Chico role. Someone who might be fairly new to his recently appointed role, but has his eyes open and is ready to listen to defence partners and families. And more importantly, learn from defence partners and families. Minister for Veteran Affairs and Minister for Defence Personnel, Andrew G. welcome to the podcast. Well, Beck, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I've been looking forward to it and I just wanted to take this opportunity to congratulate you on Military Wife Life and all that you're doing to support our Defence Force personnel and obviously their families as well. It is just tremendous and I know you've managed to help so many people and make life better for many people as a source of information and inspiration and support. Thank you so much. Well, if we can get started by introing this question with this statement, by providing families with the support that they need, we create a stronger defence force, increase capability, deployability, well-being, and overall satisfaction for the member, partners and families. By investing in partners and families, you're investing in defence members. What are your thoughts when it comes to seeing partners and families as key contributors to capability and to the well-being of the member? Oh, it's absolutely crucial and fundamental. And I think that point really was highlighted during your roundtable, which we had back in the middle of October, where we had a number of different partners there. And it was just really useful for me to hear their insights and their experiences. And it just shone through how important it is not only to the Defence Force, but also to the welfare of ADF members. And it's really is a, it's a team. It's the Defence Force, it's the ADF member, but also families and partners. And if one isn't working well, then the others don't work well either. And so if from a defence point of view, if we want a strong defence force, and if we want members who are working and operating at their best, then we need to have the support for family members there and and partners and kids as well. Like it is, it really is a holistic approach that we have to take to this. And some of the stories from the roundtable too were actually, you know, quite confronting about the difficulties that partners face, the loneliness and the isolation. And that can have a huge impact, not only on that person, but also on kids and the partner who's in the military. And, you know, we want everyone working together in a very happy and supportive environment. So it's really important that we do everything we can to get there. And that means giving as much support as possible to our families 
and partners, it's just crucial. Yeah, and I guess in saying that, obviously, from what you've just said, you place a lot of value in partners and families and their contribution to supporting the defence member and and overall defence. How do you see current policy and programs fitting with the value that you place on partners and families and and what they provide for defence and the overall well-being of the defence member? I think this is an ongoing effort and I think that it it is evolving. And so your roundtable highlighted a number of issues that needed to be addressed. And I think that defence and DVA are actually looking at that now. But, you know, I think that we recognise that families are strongest when they're connected with their local communities and have the information, services and resources that they need readily available. And I think there's always work that we can be doing to improve things. And I think your roundtable highlighted that as well. And look, just from purely from a defence point of view, we're going to have to build our people capability in defence. We're going to need more ADF members with a wider range of skills. And we also need to keep the ones that we've got, our valuable members. And one way that we can do that is by supporting members and their families, just from purely a a defence capability position. But beyond that, we want our defence members to be happy and a supportive environment. And we need our partners and families happy and, you know, enjoying the experience. And when our families are feeling isolated or they're not getting the information that they need or the packing for a deployment or a move or posting is traumatic, then we need to do something about it. And so, you know, I think there are a range of support mechanisms available. For example, you know, we've got education liaison officers in each state and territory to advise families and schools on education issues. There are a range of programs and support mechanisms in place, but I think we can always be doing better. And I know that Defence Member and Family Support is actively looking at new measures that we can put into place. But I think one of the challenges also is making sure that people know what services are there. And one of the issues that also came out in your roundtable, I thought very clearly, was that a lot of the partners didn't feel that they had all of the information that they needed in one place. And I thought that was quite telling and really one of the the key takeouts from your roundtable. And yeah, we've got to do something about that. And we've got to take all of that on board. And we've got to actually make things better for partners and their families. And there are a number of ways that we can do that, including from basic stuff like you know, getting the toll relocations working more smoothly. That was something that came out. You know, basic stuff like the Defence Health Card. A number of partners didn't know about that. And another interesting thing also, Beck, is that I think that we obviously want more female members of the ADF. And that's a big part of the recruiting drive, a very important part of it. And one of your speakers at the roundtable was male. His name is Josh. And I thought his insights were really valuable as well. And that we've got to get better at um, helping everyone. And if we want more women in the ADF, then we also have to get support to male partners as well. And so we've got to broaden the scope and get that support to where it's needed. So there are lots of things to do and look at. And I think there have been advances and some important programs put in place, but there's always more that we can be doing. And that's why your roundtable and the work that you're doing, I think, is so important because it brings those issues to the surface and gives us a point of reference on how we can make things better. Obviously fantastic that you're getting such insight and 
the roundtable is so helpful. Do you think that there should be a mechanism in place where these voices and concerns should have been heard before now? Because obviously these concerns have existed way before the roundtable. These uh, are not new issues. Uh, A lot of defence families have experienced problems with toll and lack of information, not being able to access the information themselves, having to rely on the defence member, all the things that came up in the roundtable, they existed before the roundtable. But I guess what kind of mechanism is there in place for people to voice those concerns so that it's not, you know, you taking those concerns from the roundtable and saying, this is what I'm hearing. If people had a way of having their voice heard, you would have been hearing that from day one in in the job or, you know, previous ministers would have been hearing the same things over and over. And we, we could be further ahead in the game to, I guess, coming up with some solutions. Yeah, look, I think we've got the two family advocates that have been federally appointed, uh, Gwen Cherney, who's the Veterans Family Advocate Commissioner, and also Sandy Laxon and Sharon, who is the Defence Family Advocate. And I think both of those advocates are fundamental to what we're doing and informing uh, government policy on it. But I think at the moment, I'm just looking at and waiting on some advice on different options in terms of the provision of advice to me as the Minister and to whoever sits in this chair and I'm expecting that by the end of the year previously we've had the Council for Women and Families United by Defence Service which is not operating at the moment and that body has been I think superseded by Gwen's appointment as the inaugural Veteran Family Advocate Commissioner but having said that I think that we've got to look at more ways about how policy can be informed and so I'm just awaiting on some options for a new ministerial advisory council and what that looks like and who would be on it. So that's something which we're working through at the moment. Hopefully we'll have some more uh, details on that to consider before the end of the year. But I think you've highlighted a a really good point in that I got a whole lot out of that roundtable, which you organised off your own bat to your lasting credit. Well, how do we make that a regular occurrence, which you're doing with your work and your podcast? And you put that whole thing together, which to me was tremendously valuable. So, yeah, I'm very keen to get this into a a more regular forum and a more regular voice. And I'm just having a look at options about how we can do that. The thing with defence families and partners feeling as though they can have a voice, it's not necessarily on big crisis issues. It's about the little issues that I guess build up to be bigger issues when they're not addressed. And if policies and, and programs and services are being informed only by the people that are coming to DFA or when with, you know, crisis situations or by the, the small snapshot that, that's captured through the Defence Family Survey, because that's only a small percentage of partners and, and Defence families, that we're not really getting an overall view of, of what the community needs. Yeah, look, I think there is truth in what you say. But having said that also, I think that you are having an impact through your forums and your podcasts. And that engagement with DMFS, I think, has been very positive. For example, at the moment, they're putting together a new family guide, which is going to go into book form. And I've seen parts of the early draft, and I know that they are very keen to consult with stakeholders 
and get feedback before it's formalised and sent out to, to everyone. And that's a great thing that a ministerial advisory council could be having a look at as well to make sure that when governments put this material out, it actually does hit the spot in terms of meeting and addressing those issues which speakers raised at your forum and no doubt you hear all, all of the time. So I think that there is value in it, but don't underestimate the value of what's happening at the moment either because I know that the folks at Defence are actually listening and they are trying to address those issues. But I think what also came through in your roundtable is that everyone's story is different and that it's not one size fits all in terms of solutions. And for example, some folks have young children, but it came through at the forum that you know a lot of the, the help and support is targeted at families with, with younger children and there need to be needs to be more programs aimed at older children as well. And so I think there is certainly value in that consultation. And I think it is happening. So I think the message is getting through. So we just need to find a way to formalize it. And this is an ongoing piece of work that won't be solved overnight but the point is to keep building on it and make the resources and the services better which is what we're doing. One of the challenges for those of us I guess working on ADF family issues is like we've just discussed lack of data about families. The ADF family survey has a very low uptake and you know I guess the more people know about the survey the more will take part and the more that you know, trust that their voice is going to be heard will feel like they're going to have an, an impact in taking part in that survey. How can we make sure that we're getting the data we need on families in order to shape effective policy and programs? Like I've just mentioned, if we're only taking the data from a small percentage of, of the community, how do we change that? How do we get more data to be able to effectively implement policy change and roll out programs that suit families with teenagers, that suit couples without kids and, and all of those groups within the community. Another very good point that you make and the low uptake I think has concerned defence. I've been talking to them about that point and one of the reasons um, is that they think that the survey is probably too long and complicated and that people just don't have time to fill in complicated surveys which is I would say pretty right. So they're currently, this is Defence, redesigning the family survey to address some of the limitations that you know um, all too well through your experiences and the feedback that you have. And so part of the redesign involves Defence partnering with the Australian Institute of Family Studies. And they're, I would say, leaders in the field and are skilled in translating research into policy and program outcomes. And so I think you're going to see a different approach taken to the next survey. And so the whole process is going to be shaken up and redesigned and so yeah what you say is correct there needs to be far more input into it in order for defense to be properly informed about what's needed out there in a variety of different circumstances that people have. When Gwen and Sandy are representing defence families and partners in the various forums, whether that be through AIFS and making sure that defence families and partners are seen as a subset within the community because we do have different challenges, we do have different needs, we do need to be considered in different ways and I guess it's just informing the wider community about those needs and those challenges in order for us to be considered in the way that we need or you know the research to be collated in the way that we need the question the right questions to be asked that kind of thing you know the more and more that starts happening the better we can provide for defense families and the wider community can understand defense families yeah look we want engagement in the design of the survey and we need input as to what is to go into it so i will ensure beck that that does happen and that we cast a wide net when we're putting the survey together i think it's a really important point 
point. We're very happy to work with numerous stakeholders on making sure that that does happen because we want it to be effective. It's a, it's a very, it can be a very important tool if it's done correctly and the planning and thought goes into it. Do you think it's time for more innovation in the way that programs are designed and delivered and funded? I guess previously from the, the first roundtable, we had the idea that we possibly work with DMFS to provide some sort of pilot program of seed or grant funding for defence partners who are working on projects or businesses that directly benefit the defence community because obviously we know better than anyone what kind of gaps exist and most of the time we go out if we can't find what we need we go out and create it or start a program or create a business that fills that need and we had spoken about some sort of initiative to support those partners that isn't the FSFP funding which is specific for -for not-for-profits because obviously defence partners don't always have the ability to set up not-for-profits and all that goes into that. Do you think that more innovative ways of supporting partners and families to be able to provide for the defence community would be a good thing? Yeah, I do. I agree with you on that. I definitely believe that we do need to be looking at innovative ways of funding a variety of different programs and you see it in terms of veteran support and you see it in terms of family support as well and the reality is that things change over time the demographic of our veterans has changed over time so the support that we give our veterans and how we give it to them and who gives it to them actually needs to change and it's the same with family support as well the workforce is more flexible now there's a lot more innovation and I think we need to be flexible in the way that we fund these programs and so yeah I'm always looking to hear of uh, new ideas for funding programs and where they stack up I'll definitely be in there supporting them I think defense has kept an open mind in terms of some of the things that they've been working on specifically some of their programs for in education I think you are going to see some new programs that have come out of feedback of the type that we saw in your forum. So there are some some really solid new programs being launched, but these are government programs. But I think in terms of more general grants programs, yes, there is room there for more innovation. And we've got to be a little bit lateral in our thinking on them as well and understand that times are changing and we have to move with the times in, in terms of these funding programs and how we deliver them. So yep, I'm very interested to hear of any new initiatives or proposals that come forward. I think we should be encouraging them, not discouraging them. And can you talk about the role that the Veteran Wellbeing Centres will play for current defence partners and families? Can you just talk to us about what the Veteran Wellbeing Centres are and how they'll sort of play out? It's important to get the message out there that the Veteran Wellbeing Centres are for not only current members of the ADF, they're for former members of the ADF, so veterans, um, reservists, and also their families. And they are proving extremely popular, I have to say. And I think it's been something that has really captured the imagination of defence and veteran communities. And so they offer a range of services. Uh, Just before we went into lockdowns, I went up to Townsville and checked out the Oasis, which is um, a wellbeing centre being operated up there very impressive and there's a range of services that are available um, up at the oasis it's a meeting place there's a a cafe up there which is run by veterans they make a very good brew up there but each of the well-being centers provides individualized services based on the needs of local veterans and their families and are run by organizations with those relationships within the local community so they're very connected into the local community and very connected in with various ex-service organizations 
transition and some of the services that they can provide. And everyone is different. Uh, transition and employment support, advocacy services, social connectedness. The Oasis has a library so people can come in there and read. I mean, it's a great place to have a read or just borrow a book and leave. Physical and mental health services, community engagement, meeting spaces, um, you name it. So the Perth, Adelaide and Townsville centres are now open and the Nowra, Wodonga and Darwin centres are each delivering services through interim premises while finalising their permanent locations. And as part of the last budget, the government announced a further commitment of almost $11 million to expand the Veteran Wellbeing Centre program into southeast Queensland and Tassie. And I'm very keen to expand the program. So they are proving so popular that the demand is just going to keep growing and every area wants one. So I think it's a really worthwhile program and I'm going to try to expand it and get more up and running. That's my plan. Nine out of 10 defence spouses wish they found out about Defence Bank sooner. Okay, I might have just made that up and they do sponsor my podcast, but I've checked them out and I think they're worth a look just for their banking app alone. It's award-winning, has cool features like fast same-day payments, card alerts and controls, and pin change functionality, savings roundups, Apple Pay, Google Pay, Fitbit Pay, Garmin Pay, the list goes on. Oh, and if you really want to go to a branch, you can. There are 33 on-base branches across Australia. Banking as a defence spouse doesn't have to be hard. For more info, visit defencebank.com.au. And so how are we going to ensure that the veteran wellbeing centres are providing for current serving families as well as veterans? Is there a case where the centre has to show that they're providing just as much for families as what they are for the veteran, since the obviously the funding's for veterans and families? And then obviously current and former serving have different needs. How is it that each centre's going to be, I guess, proving that they're providing for the diverse needs of the community because what happens sometimes with funding that goes to community centres and veteran organisations is that the funding goes to those organisations and then it's the case where there might be still gaps within the community with services, programs and support for current families and partners. But then on paper, all of these other organisations have funding to provide services and support for these families. And so, you know, when someone else goes for a grant or tries to show that there's a need, we're told, well, all of, the, all of these organisations should be providing that. How do we ensure that current families are being provided for just as much as the veteran? Yeah, and I think, again, another very good point. I think that can be a consideration in the expression of interest process as part of each um, wellbeing centre. But I think that every community is different. And so it'll just depend on what the needs are of the community and what the aims of each organisation are that want to set up a wellbeing centre. But I think it can be made part of that whole assessment process. And it's a good point that you make, that we have to make sure that it is part of the process and that that is being being considered and as we roll these centers out we've got to make that a consideration we've got to be making sure that it's just a, not a one-faceted approach in setting up these centers i think for example the oasis in townsville does a good job in having programs for not only veterans but also families i've just got to make sure that that is consistently applied throughout the centers so how does partner employment contribute to adf workforce development you know it's not just 
retention, but recruiting and retaining the people and skills defence need and, and having members in the places defence need them. What do you see or what kind of contribution do you see partner employment making to the ADF workforce? Oh, I think it's absolutely crucial as, again, that, that came through loud and clear in your roundtable. Again, it's something that I think we've got to get better at and there's got to be some more lateral thinking. I think defence, they are starting to think that way, which is good. And one of the things that COVID has demonstrated, for example, is that the workforce is changing where people are located is changing. And one of the initiatives that they are looking at is, for example, how we can have people co-working and trialing a, a co-working situation, which is apparently working quite well in the UK. So if, for example, you have entrepreneurial partners who, you know, they might be running a small business trialing how they can be working together in a hub type environment on a military base and getting them together so there is that social aspect of it and it also kind of builds that sense of community and they can build a business as well and so that's just one initiative which they're looking at at the moment but yeah I think it's a vitally important part of making sure that we have a properly functioning ADF and that there is satisfaction there, not only for our ADF personnel, but partners as well. I mean, it's got to be, as I said at the outset of the podcast, this is a team effort and everyone's got to be on this journey together and getting something positive out of it if it's going to work. And if we want people in the ADF who have happy and rewarding careers, then our partners also need to be achieving their goals and professionally as well and so we need to be supporting them in doing that and of course co-working it sounds like you know this fancy exciting thing but there's so much more that goes into co-working obviously since COVID a lot more employers have seen the benefits of allowing people to work from home take their job with them around the country which is music to defense partners ears when you can continue in a job that you love and continue your career while you post with the member Co-working is about bringing defence partners together who might be working for themselves, might be working for an employer, but also takes away that isolation, but gives them that community of like-minded people. And I guess if they were to know that there was a co-working space in every defence location that they went to, there'd be more security knowing that they can rejoin a community that gets where they're coming from, or they can connect in professionally with them and network with people and all of those benefits that go on behind the, you know, that fancy co-working word so it'd be amazing to be able to support co-working around the country for defense partners yeah i think it would and i've i I live in orange new south wales and just down the road is um, a place called the hive where all of these small business people all working together and there is a real buzz about it so i think that is something we can definitely be looking at and also how do we support career portability so that giving people the resources to move to different postings and still maintain that career making sure sure that they have the skills to do that the support to do that and also the technology to do that as well because technology is a big part of this now and there are probably more things that we can be doing there to make sure that people have that technical support as well to move with their partner and maintain could be client contact for example so it's it's a whole new world out there post-covid and 
we've got to, I think, seize upon it, take advantage of it, but make sure people are supported in not only co-working, but in, I think, career portability and making sure that they feel that they have the support there so that when a movie's on, it's as seamless as possible. And it's not such a traumatic experience professionally as well, as well as just the physical aspect of moving and getting logistics. The whole work move is is a big thing, but it perhaps doesn't need to be as big in the modern age with the, with the technology that we have now and the fact that people accept that you know you don't have to have a physical meeting anymore. COVID has been devastating in so many ways, but in some ways it has also been a revelation and it's been a revelation certainly in the workforce for working at home, for decentralisation and remote working as well. There are some great opportunities there, which I think does certainly present well in terms of ADF partners and and what we can do there and what they can be doing to keep working and keep their career going and, you know, keep career progression going as well. Because when you're being posted to different locations, it's kind of stop and start. Well, if your partner is in a a form of employment where that doesn't have to happen, it just makes life so much easier for everyone. So there's some opportunities here and I think Defence is looking at them more support in that in that area for partners the less likely that a defense member is going to leave defense because of employment reasons for their partner or unemployment reasons or dissatisfaction with the defense lifestyle because the partner is unable to continue their career yeah and it's a it's a major cause of people leaving the adf in terms of it's just too unworkable with partners and and families and and the burdens and the strains just become too much and if we want a, a strong and capable ADF if, if we want that body of knowledge staying in the ADF. I mean, we spend so much time and, and effort and money on training and to, to lose that valuable ADF people can be devastating for our defence capability. So if we want to keep that capability, then this is a big part of it and making sure that family life and, and the professional life of partners is as seamless and as smooth as possible, I think is an important part of it. And I think if we're being honest, it's not something that defence in the past has really been on top of, but I think they're getting there. And I think times have changed and people's expectations about the workplace have now changed as well. And again, that's something post-COVID that's only going to increase. And I think there is a realisation in defence that they have to be flexible now in, in the support that they give and that the importance of partners. And, and families and their happiness and well-being can't be underestimated. Yeah, definitely. And the importance of it can't be underestimated. How do you think ADF families have fared during COVID? I guess a lot of families have been separated for long periods of time due to being member with dependent unaccompanied and border closures. There's been a lot of uncertainty. Obviously, before COVID, we had fires and a number of different natural disasters that took defence members away from their families. So it was sort of back-to-back-to-back commitments obviously part of the job for defence, but a lot to ask of families. How do you think that families have fared during COVID? I think it's been very difficult for a lot of families. And certainly, again, that was something that came through from your roundtables, but there is the work away from home. So you've mentioned bushfires, but COVID assist was huge. I mean, I saw out in my area in the Central West, we've had men and women from the ADF deployed for months at a time, away for a long way from home. And and pretty chilly out where we were, but we had folks from Darwin, and Brisbane and all over the place. And they were separated from their loved ones for months. 
I mean, they made a real difference to, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, the work that they did was extraordinary. And I think that when we look back on this pandemic, those ADF pop-up clinics and COVID assist are going to be seen as the turning point in many areas. Certainly they were in our neck of the woods, but it has taken a toll on families. Not only that, you've had people having to isolate for um, periods of time on multiple occasions. I think that's been very difficult as well. And so I think it's been very challenging for defence families and I think it has been very difficult. And so, you know, on top of the regular stresses of postings and deployments. So I know that uh, DMFS have been conducting welfare calls and they've been trying to get the information about the support mechanisms that are out there. But I think we can't underestimate how challenging it's been and how difficult it's been. And I think when in times of great uncertainty, like the bushfires, and I had bushfires out in my area where I live, it was devastating, but also COVID. I think people look to the ADF for that sense of security. And when they see the men and women of the ADF in uniform, they get the sense that Australia cares and that everything is going to be all right. But of course, it's not just the men and women in uniform that are making the sacrifices and the service and sacrifice. It's not just ADF personnel, it's families as well. And I know it's been really difficult for them. So now that you've been in the role of Minister for Defence Personnel and Minister for Veteran Affairs for a little while, have you had a chance to get to know the community a bit more? And and I guess, what are your priorities for families? My priority is to make sure that support is readily and easily available for our serving ADF personnel, their families and our veterans. And that means streamlining any unnecessary processes which prevent a functioning support system. I think that's really important. And making sure that the support systems are adaptable and flexible and that they're moving with the times, recognising that the families of our ADF personnel play a crucial role in supporting the health and wellbeing of our serving members. And I think also recognising that service on the home front can be just as important as service on the front line and getting the community to understand that as well and appreciate that because I think that we perhaps don't do that as well as some other countries do it. And I'm talking about, for example, the United States and just making sure that we're getting the support to families where it's needed and that it's not just a one-size-fits-all approach. I mean, Defence Personnel and Veterans Affairs is a vast portfolio and there are many moving parts on many different fronts, but the role that partners and families play is absolutely crucial. And so the priority is making sure that we're getting the support to where it's needed. And I think on top of that, uh, it's making sure also that our families and partners feel that their voices are heard and that they are part of the journey that our ADF personnel and their loved ones are on and that they're not alienated by it. And through your roundtable, that was one of the themes that I think was coming through. I think there was some alienation that was felt in that, for example, the information is communicated to the ADF member rather than the partner. And sometimes that information can get relayed uh, better than other times. For example, it was left up to me to relay information about all of that material to my family. Quite frankly, I don't think I'd be that good at it. 
you know, and there is that alienation that that is felt there. Some partners and families are better at doing that than others. And so I think that's a great example of being flexible in the support. And there are some pretty basic things that we can be doing. And so I think instilling in defence the need for that flexibility and the need to kind of broaden their thinking on how support is delivered, I think is an important part of my role. Of course, obviously, by making some positive changes in some of those challenging areas, defence families can focus on the positive aspects of defence life, which is, you know, lifelong friendships, adventure by moving around to different areas of the country, a community that's so supportive that, you know, they're like your chosen family, all of those positives that you want to focus on. But sometimes when those challenges are happening, they kind of overshadow all of those benefits. Yeah, I agree. And I think on top of that, when you are experiencing those difficulties, on top of all of that, if you are experiencing isolation as well, it can exacerbate those issues and and they become harder to deal with if you don't feel that you've got that sense of community and that sense of support. So we want to make sure that families and partners are as happy and as content as ADF members. I think that's ultimately the goal, that they do feel that they are enjoying it because we want it to be an enjoyable experience and a positive experience because at the end of the day, being a a partner and family member is also a form of service to to country as well. And but we want it to be a positive experience because it's such an important thing that that we're doing, ADF members and their families. It is a very high calling to serve your country in this way. And but we want everyone to be part of it and to be getting something out of the experience and and happy and content. And if we can achieve that, then we will have been doing our jobs as policymakers. That's my point of view on it. If we can get the policy settings right and people are feeling that and getting the support, then we will have been doing our jobs. We are not there yet. That's quite clear. I think we're better at it than we were before. There's still more work to do. And we're seeing that in Veterans Affairs as well. I think we are much better at Veterans Affairs as a country than we have been, but we've still got a heck of a lot more work to do. But it's people like you, Beck. Um, that are making sure that we're getting the the messages through and that are helping to inform the policy settings and that are making life better for um, folks on the ground. Investing in families and partners transitioning into defence life, you're also investing in those families and partners being there to help the defence member transition out of defence life. So it sort of has that overall benefit for the journey of defence life for the family that transition in and the defence member that transitions out. That's exactly right. On the point of the way that the US military, the UK military and militaries around the world support their families and and their military members and partners with the various programs and months and all the days and the national holidays and all the things that they do to thank defence partners and families and personnel. The amazing Hayley Boswell from Defence Kids has put together a submission with the support of myself and a number of other defence partners, all doing fantastic things for and advocating for the defence community. What would you think about introducing a Defence Families Day in Australia? Well, I was recently given a copy of submission on this and... I've got to say, I liked it. I thought it was 
really positive thing that our country can be doing. And I think that that recognition of defence families is overdue. It's long overdue. It's been overdue for generations, if we're being honest about it. And, uh, you know, I think we can take a leaf out of the US book on the way that they do recognise their veterans, but also their families. And so why can't we do that here? And why shouldn't we do that here? We know that families and partners sacrifice so much. And I think our country should recognise that and be aware of it. And I looked at your submission, I thought, yeah, why not? Why can't we do that? We should be able to do that. There should be a way of doing that. So I really liked it and said in submission, Canada's got one. America's got a whole military family appreciation month. They've also got military spouse appreciation day and month of the military child. I mean, strike a light. We should be able to do something. So yeah, I'm with you on it. And I'm going to get cracking on it, Beck. We'll reconvene in 2022 and see what we can do. Yeah, I know. I'm quite serious about that. That is something that we should be able to do. Now, there are a lot of days and a lot of weeks on our national calendar. Uh, and I think that, you know, some folks may say, oh, well, we've got enough days and we've got enough weeks. But to be honest with you, giving recognition to our military partners and families is something that we should be doing and it should be one of our top priorities. We've got some great people working on it. So I will definitely do whatever I can to progress that and make it happen. Thank you so much. I'll look forward to chatting to you further about it. And I guess in saying that, you mentioned that the US, you know, there's lots to be learnt from the US and other military forces with what they do with family and partner support. Do you think that it's time for a review of family policy? The UK military are currently undertaking a review because they have end dates on their military policies. And their review is similar to the Hamilton report, which was done back in the 80s which informed the introduction of DMFS or then DCO and and DFA and all the supports that kind of exist now. Do you think that it's time for a Hamilton Report 2.0 where you travel around the country and hear the voices of families and partners and gather all of those voices together and take them back and say, okay, well, these are the overarching themes that came through and this is what we can do going forward. This is how we can change policy. This is how we can review family policy. Do you think that there would be any merit in that? I think we can consider it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have one. I think it's something that we can have a look at. I mean, I think that the defence policies and the support programs are reviewed regularly, but I wouldn't definitely rule that out. It's something that we can consider going forward. We've got a lot on our plate at the moment, obviously, with the Royal Commission and the report of Dr. Bernadette Boss. We've also got the work on transition and the Joint Transition Authority going on. So there's a lot of work being done. But I think what you're saying is, should we have a a single review into families and family support? I think that's something that we can consider and we can have a look at that. What that review would look like and who would do it, I think is something that we'd have to have a good think about. But I think there would be some merit in someone taking a bird's eye view of what's going on out there and bringing it together. Now, whether that's something that we can do with our existing personnel and advocates that we've got on working at the moment might be something that Gwen and Sandy could be working on. So I can see some benefit in it. I think it is an interesting suggestion. And I think the fact that you've been thinking about it and have put it forward, I think, you know, is commendable, quite frankly. And it is something that we can be having a look at. So thank you for suggesting it. I mean that sincerely. I, I really do. I think that there's obviously some big pieces of work going on at the moment. But in all of that, 
partners and family shouldn't be overlooked. Minister, thank you for coming on the podcast. Beck, it's been a pleasure. And whenever we chat, I always find that I learn a lot and that your advocacy for partners and families, I think is not only commendable, but incredibly useful and that you are actually making a difference out there and making life better for not only partners and families, but by doing that, you make life better for our men and women of the ADF. So thank you for your work. And the task for me as a policymaker is actually to take all of this on board and make sure that we deliver results on the ground for families, partners and ADF personnel. And you have my undertaking that I will do that with the information that you have provided me today and no doubt that you will in the future. So thank you very much um, for all of the work that you're doing. I think it's incredibly valuable and I think you do it with such passion and to share your experiences in the way that you do. I think it has meant a lot to a lot of people. So thank you for doing it. I really appreciate it. And I think Australia appreciates it as well. And the partners and families of our ADF personnel are really unsung heroes of our in so many ways and that we see our ADF personnel out on the ground and they're in our thoughts but our nation should also be thinking about and thanking our partners and families as well who sacrifice so much for our nation. I so hope you are able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things, I would so appreciate it if you could pop into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, a comment about what you would like to hear more of, or just some encouraging words. If you want to suggest a guest, I am always looking for new people to talk to. You can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarywifelife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page. I would love to hear from you. 